the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. In both Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8 said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you've repented, if you've turned from your ways as a non-believer and you've turned to Christ, that's what repentance is. It's going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. You're living a life without Christ. You're just living according to how you know to live without Christ, just, you know, doing worldly stuff, worldly people, worldly things. You come to faith in Christ. Now you're going to turn from that. You're going to repent, go 180 degrees in the opposite direction and follow Christ. This is Cornerstone Connection. The radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Philippians. Today, Pastor Gary discusses what your life ought to look like once you've accepted Jesus into your heart and decided to live for Him. Simply asking the Lord into your heart and calling yourself a Christian doesn't make it so. Pastor Gary says that there also has to be fruits, or in other words, actions, that demonstrate your relationship with Christ show others that you've been changed through him. You've probably heard the saying, you can't just talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Well, that's exactly what Pastor Gary is asking of you today. Turn from your sins, repent, and make a change that is outward as well as inward. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Just so that we can get context again, let me just uh, share with you the main purpose uh, that Paul said that he was writing, the, or that we see from the book of Philippians. The main purpose that, uh, of his writing this letter is threefold. The first is a thank you letter for their support, for the church at Philippi, for their support and an update on this condition from prison in Rome. Remember, he wrote this book around the year 62 AD. It was about 10 years after he had planted the church in Philippi, and now he finds himself in prison because he was arrested for proclaiming the gospel. The whole account of his planting the church in Philippi is in Acts chapter 16, and the subsequent chapters that follow, he ends up being imprisoned, he ends up going to Caesarea, and then he appeals to Rome. And so he's in in Rome now in a prison, and he writes this letter back to the church of Philippi as a way of thanking them and giving them an update on his condition. Twice in chapter 1, he refers to his chains. He says in verse 7 of chapter 1, if you want to just glance back to chapter 1, verse 7, he says, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains 
or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. So they had, they had partnered in his ministry financially and prayerfully, and so he's writing this letter, and he's thanking them for their support. He's giving them this update on his condition. I, I love his, his mentality. I love Paul's disposition. You know, in the middle of prison, and, you're, and you, you are in prison for, for doing a good thing, you haven't even committed a crime, but now you find yourself in prison, and look at his attitude, look at his disposition, in the middle of verse, I'm still in chapter 1, middle of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will continue to rejoice, verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul says, you know, I know I'm not in the most ideal situation, but I'm just believing God that it's going to work out for my deliverance and God's going to do some good and wonderful things here. He even says in chapter 1, I know that I need to be here because I'm able to preach the gospel to the palace guard. So God has me on assignment, even though my condition looks a little bleak from a worldly perspective that someone is in prison. He says, from my perspective, God's going to sort it all out. He's going to work everything for his good in my life. And um, I'm just trusting him in the midst of all of this. Now, it is still fair to say, however, that Paul's exhausted. I mean, he trusts God. And it is not a contradiction to say, I trust God, I know I'm going to be delivered. But boy, I sure, whenever he wants to take me home, would be glad to go home too. Because he says that also in chapter 1 here. In in verse 23, he says, I I desire to depart and be with Christ. Sometimes life can take such a toll that you just want your ultimate heavenly reward. This is not a death wish. He's not not having suicidal thoughts here. He's just simply saying, look, I, I feel spent. And as far as it concerns me, I would just as soon be with Jesus and be with the Lord. You know, look, that that's... Some of you probably, in all seriousness, have felt like that. Life has taken such a toll on you, and you can become at a place where you're just so spent that you just want to go be with the Lord forever. And so he's not, it's not a death wish. It's just a wish to be with Jesus. It's just, it's just you know, I just want to be with the Lord. But he adds, still in chapter 1, verse 24, he says, but it is more necessary for you that I remain. So Paul knows that his ministry is not done. He knows that he still is called by the Lord to do a work for the kingdom. And he says to the church at Philippi, he says, you know, I might wish to be with the Lord, but I know he still has an assignment for me and he's not done with me. I sense that. So he says here, I don't know how much longer I have. He's going to allude to his imminent death in chapter 2 when he talks about I, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He, he knows that his death is imminent and that he's probably going to be martyred for the gospel, which he eventually will be. But he says, in the meantime, I know that for your sake, I need to remain. So as much as I just want to enjoy my ultimate reward, I know that there's the the necessity for me to remain and do what God wants me to do here on earth. He's, He's not complaining. He's just recognizing earth and the world can be hard and life can take its toll and things can get tough. Uh, so Lord, whenever you want to take me, I'm, I'm ready to go home. But as long as it's more necessary for me to remain, then let me remain and let me finish the task that you've assigned to me. Now, he goes into chapter 2 here. Uh, well, actually, the second, the second point of the purpose of his writing is a warning about false teachers, which he'll get more in, into, into chapter 3. But as we move into chapter 2 again, the third purpose of his writing is he's pleading for unity because there's not unity in this church. There's, there's Word that has gotten to Paul in prison, 
And we're going to find out the name of the guy that's the messenger. His name is Epaphroditus. We see him mentioned here in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4. And Epaphroditus comes to Paul in prison and gives him the update of the church of Philippi. It's, it's, not, it's not a good update. Because the church of Philippi, they've got some fighting going on. They've got some bickering. They've got some division. There's two women in particular he's going to call out by name in chapter 4. So he, he's, he's addressing this whole issue of unity because unity in the church is so vital. You can't get much done when there's disunity and division. And it, it casts a disparaging uh, reputation on the Lord when his children don't get along. And so Paul is rebuking the church at Philippi here, and he's going to talk, talk to them about you need to be in unity. That doesn't mean you're always going to agree on everything, but you better get along for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of people who are going to be watching the church. You know, look, it's been said that you are the only Bible that some people will re- ever read. And Paul even says in 2 Corinthians 3, 2, I believe it is, he says, you, you, you are like living epistles written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. Paul talks about how we as Christians are known and read by everybody. People are going to look at your life, and they're going to get a view, hopefully it's a proper view, of the Lord through your life. And if we're not living well for him, then we're, we're not serving him well, and we're not being a good ambassador. And, and the, corporate, the corporate sense here that he's addressing is, you guys have to be in unity. You have to love each other. You have to get along. In spite of how you might have some other little technical differences, not, not over the essentials of the faith, but there, there might be some room for some differences and discussions. But you had better learn how to sort through those differences and get along and love each other because you've got a lost and dying world that is watching you. So he pleads for unity here. In Proverbs 6, verse 16, there's a list in Proverbs 6, 16 about, it says six things that God hates, seven things that, that he despises. And the last thing on the list is a brother who stirs up dissension among brothers. So there, there's some things that God hates. There's a list he has in Proverbs 6, 16, and one of them is that someone who sows seeds of discord or, or stirs up dissension within the body of Christ. So Paul is going to really, he's going to drive this point of unity home here in chapter 2 very strongly. That's why I look again at the first few verses of chapter 2. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love... If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete. This would really make my day, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, that's agape in the Greek, being one in spirit and purpose. So do you hear all of those different terms speaks about unity, like-minded, same love, one in spirit and purpose. He says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That's not what our culture teaches, is it? I mean, our our world just does not teach think of others better than you think of yourself. Consider others better than you consider yourself. Put others before self. We we live in a very self-oriented society. So the Bible is often counterintuitive to some of the things that we learn in our world. We are not to be self-minded. We are to be others-minded here. And he challenges us 
And then as an example, at verse, verse 4, he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, colon. And then this is where we left off last week, so I'm not going to go over this whole section again, but he, he highlights some things about Jesus as, a, as an example of one who was very others-oriented. You know, you don't, you don't go to a cross and die for, for the sins of the world unless you're really, really others-oriented. Okay, nobody does that if, if they're selfish or if they're only about self-interest or selfish ambition. You do that solely because of your love for others, and that's what Christ did for us. And so Paul then summarizes between, I'm going to summarize between verses 6 through 11. By the way, this is thought to be an early church hymn, and, and so that's why it's indented in your Bibles. And verses 6 through 11, uh, Paul is reminding us that, that Christ gave up the glory of heaven. You know, he talks about how, how Christ made himself nothing. Literally, it means Jesus emptied himself, though he is God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or something to be held on to, but, but he emptied himself, made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. So you talk about humility. You talk about someone who emptied self to think of others. I mean, that's Jesus for us. He gave up the glory of heaven. He gave up the independent exercise of his own will and authority. I mean, Jesus even said in John 12, 29, he's, or John 12, 49, he says, For I do not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So there in John 12, 49, Jesus even says, Even the words I speak and how I phrase those words are directed by my Father. That's how much I'm completely emptied of self and dependent on the will and direction of of my Father. We see also in Scripture that he gave up the exercise of omniscience. He gave up the exercise of omnipresence and omnipotence. And he even for for a season, for a time, for a moment, gave up his favorable relationship with the Father in heaven when from the cross, when Jesus assumed the sins of the world and the wrath of God was satisfied and God then had to turn away from looking at wickedness. Jesus says, my God, my God, Elo, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's even this emptying of the favorable relationship that he had with the Father to accomplish the purpose on the cross. So altogether, when you look at all that Christ divests himself of his glory, condescends to our level, gives up his, all this majestic glory of heaven, comes down, takes on flesh, becomes like us, identifies with our pain, breathes our air, and senses what we sense in this world, gives up all of this because of his love for us. Now, he he will take it up again, but for the purpose of his ministry on earth, empties himself, took on the very nature of a servant, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Paul uses this example. He says, okay, now, look, the one that we follow, look at what Jesus gave up for us. Look at what he did for us. That's how others-oriented he is. Now, nobody's asking you to be crucified for anybody, but the least we could do is to be like-minded, same love, being one in spirit and purpose, and do nothing out of selfish ambition. So he uses Christ here as his perfect example. So then here at verse 12 is where we really left off a few weeks ago. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends... As you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according 
to his good purpose. Let me just read to the end of the section, and then we'll come back. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Same theme here about unity. So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, so here's this reference to he knows his death is probably imminent. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. All right, just to kind of highlight this passage, which is a very interesting passage, these two verses together here, because Paul is going to emphasize this age-old tension between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty right here between verses 12 and 13. So he talks about how we are to continue in verse 12 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then he adds in verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. Verse 12, we're supposed to work it out. Verse 13, God works it out. So which is it? It is both. And, and look, somebody, some Bible commentary said about Paul that he, he writes like, on a, like an Arminian and he prays like a Calvinist. Okay, and Arminians basically put the emphasis on man's responsibility and Calvinists put the emphasis on God's sovereignty. And the fact is that the Bible teaches both. But right here you have in verses 12 and 13 juxtaposed right next to each other two verses, each one having to do with with each position. So verse 12 is more of the emphasis on man's responsibility and verse 13 is more of an emphasis on, on God's sovereignty. And, and Paul has no problem here and he makes no attempt to reconcile these, he just boldly proclaims both. He says, I, I want to urge you, and he's speaking here by the Spirit. He's writing by the Spirit. He says, I want to urge you. I want you to work out your salvation. And by the way, I want you to know that God is working in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So you are to work, and God is also at work, and it is both. But please notice, verse 12 is not work for your salvation. It's not work for your salvation. It's work out your salvation. And actually, this passage in classical Greek language, it's the same expression to work out as a mathematician would work out a mathematical equation to its ultimate end. It's working it out. It's understanding the reality of what God has called you to. It's not working for, it's working out. He's writing here to believers of the church of Philippi. He's not saying perform for your salvation. He's saying demonstrate that you are saved. Work out your salvation. See, friends, it's not just simply about conscience. It's also about conduct. And it's not just about belief. It's also about behavior. Christians need to understand that it's part of the responsibility of every Christ follower to live your life in such a way you're working out your salvation that people can identify that you actually belong to Christ. There should be no mystery about our salvation. Now, people who may not know Christ may not be able to articulate, oh, you're a Christian, oh, you're a Christ follower, oh, you love Jesus, okay? But there should be no mystery about the fact that you are different and that your life demonstrates it. That's what Paul is saying here. You and I need to live our lives in such a way that people can recognize the difference of our life as a testimony to salvation. 
Okay, Listen, look what Peter said. You don't need to turn there, but I'll read to you from 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 12, where Peter says, Live such good lives among the pagans. It's just a generic word for people who don't know the Lord. Live your lives in, in, among the pagans such that though they accuse you of doing wrong, okay, because they may not like the way that you're living for Christ now. They think it's wrong. They think it's messed up. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That they may see your good deeds. That, that non-believers looking on your life can see something noticeable, tangible, demonstrative about your relationship with Christ. It just can't simply be, I believe this, I believe that. If you believe this and that concerning the Lord, then your life should demonstrate what you believe. Your actions should follow. Look, John the Baptist, in both Matthew 3.8 and Luke 3.8, said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you've repented, if you've turned from your ways as a non-believer and you've turned to Christ, that's what repentance is. It's going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. You're living a life without Christ. You're just living according to how you know to live without Christ, just you know, doing worldly stuff, worldly people, worldly things. You come to faith in Christ. Now you're going to turn from that. You're going to repent, go 180 degrees in the opposite direction and follow Christ. John the Baptist says, so there ought to be some fruit. There ought to be some some tangible evidence of that repentance. It can't just be a belief system. That might be where it starts. But behavior should always follow belief. So if you believe in Christ and if you love Jesus and if you're a Christ follower and you make that profession, it should be noticeable in your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. George Mueller, the great 19th century evangelist, said, quote, We must work out what God in his grace has worked in. We have to work it out. And we are to work it out with fear and trembling. In other words, there should be this sober, sacred, reverential awe of God. Our faith should be a faith that is a holy and sacred thing that we have such awe of God, such respect for his holy majesty, such reverence for who he is that we take seriously the Christian walk. There needs to be Look, if the church of Jesus Christ is to ever really impact this world and to ever be effective for the kingdom, we must recapture the word holiness. We must be a people of holiness and purity. I'm getting a little ahead of myself because of what he says here in chapter 2, but in Acts chapter 15... When the early church was a little, uh, remember the early church originally was entirely made up of Jews, Jews who believed in Jesus. So the, for the first about 10 years of the early church, it was entirely made up of Jews who were believers in Jesus, believers in Yeshua as Messiah. And when the first Gentiles came to faith in Acts chapter 10, that's Cornelius and his family. When Gentiles first came to faith in Christ, it created quite a stir among the Jews. They're like, is it okay for Gentiles to get saved? We're not quite sure if this is 
kosher. We don't know. We don't know if this is all right for the goyim to come into faith too. And so it tells us in Acts 15, they actually met the council of Jerusalem, made up of some of the old surviving apostles, got together to discuss this question. Philippians is such a happy little book. Its pages are filled with rejoicing and encouragement and reminders that there's hope in the midst of struggle. The Apostle Paul was enthusiastic and complimentary in this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ, and the instructions you find within its pages are relevant to you still today. Thanks for joining Pastor Gary Hamrick in studying this New Testament book of Philippians today on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear more from this series or explore additional books of the Bible, you can do so at cornerstoneconnection.cc or download our mobile app to take these messages on the go with you. Each day contains mundane tasks that can be filled with God's Word, and that's made easier when you have it conveniently located on your mobile device. Find a link to download our app at cornerstoneconnection.cc. We'd love to meet you too. So if you're in the area, come join us this Sunday at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'll have a time of worship and Bible study, and we're always excited to meet new people. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from his verse-by-verse study of the book of Philippians. So join us again on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Listen, truth opens up your eyes Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.